Hey everyone, this is Luke, and welcome to another episode of Exploring Kodawari. In this episode, we speak with composer, arranger, and trumpet player Brandon Dix. Brandon is currently pursuing a doctorate in trumpet performance at Arizona State University, and he caught my eye because of his impressive videography and performing skills on his YouTube and Instagram channels. He arranges everything from Vivaldi through Jurassic Park to Super Mario music, Zelda music, uh, for a wide variety of trumpet ensemble combinations, and then he usually plays every part himself before editing it all together into a really impressive finished product. Especially in these COVID-19 pandemic times, his social media and video editing skills are a huge plus. So we asked him how he learned all of these skills and what tips he had for other musicians who want to experiment with making music online. And since he's also a performer and educator, we also got into some more general thoughts on life as a musician and different teaching philosophies, things like that. Links to Brandon's YouTube channel and other social media are in the episode notes, so be sure to follow him and check out his content. There's even a Jurassic Park performance in a T-Rex costume. <laughs> Lastly, if you enjoy exploring Kodawari, we hope that you'll help us out by leaving a rating and a review in your podcasting app. Or if you want to support us more substantially, you can click the support tab on our website and make a donation through our PayPal links. All right, that's it for now. Thanks to Brendan for coming on. Thanks to you all for listening and enjoy the episode. All right, well, Brandon Dix, welcome to Exploring Kodawari. Thanks for coming on. Happy to be here. Uh, can you give a, I'll, I'll give a little intro to you uh, in, the, in, the, in the intro to this podcast, but can you give a more personal intro to uh, who you are, what, what you're doing? Sure thing. So right now I'm a trumpeter, composer, and educator. Uh, primarily what I like to do is work with media in particular, like videos. And most of my compositions, I've even moved towards doing most of the media side. I kind of have some ideas and things for arrangements and that whole world. I've been composing most of my life pretty much started when I was in seventh grade, 12 years old, 12 years old. So that makes it easier. <laughs> yes. At the same time, you get stuck in your ways. So oh, it, I see it makes that. it a little <laughs> tough that way too. Um, but it's been a weird path in a lot of ways because I thought I was just going to stick to be a, being a composer for most of my life. And trumpet and education never really was my immediate want so mm -hmm. over time, uh, as I started to get better at trumpet and started to develop my skills, uh, I actually realized it was a lot of fun and I enjoyed the process more so of learning the music and learning what I could do with the music. So trumpet started to take over and really influenced my compositions. Then I had a video background when I was really young of making some goofy YouTube videos and primarily of just... So I'm actually a really big roller coaster uh, addict. Oh yeah, <laughs> as another little side bit. Um, so I actually played in Roller Coaster Tycoon, put them online, like all these different videos of things I would create. And I, I weird, right? But it actually I used helped to play that when learn. I was younger too. Yeah, I it's one of my game. it was mm -hmm. one of my favorite games too. <laughs> you get to be a god and just play with Pretty theme much. parks. <laughs> Pretty much. And for me, it was an outlet to like create new things and kind of shape worlds too. So I, I learned how to video edit from there. Mm. And when I came to my master's, I'm like, oh yeah, I know how to use Vegas Pro. So I just, I had a copy of Vegas Pro and just started making some videos mainly because it was fun. And turns out it actually became something that 
became what I think a really intricate part of my career. So yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. when you look at your videos, you have them on Instagram and, and YouTube, we'll link all that stuff. You know, I've seen a lot of musicians, especially in COVID-19, try to boost their online presence and make videos with themselves playing or colleagues in different locations. But yours are just on point in terms of professional video editing quality, different angles, you know, the sound. and Yeah, we were absolutely fascinated last night watching, um, I think it was Jurassic Park, right? There were like 10 of you. And oh, yeah, I'm like, yeah, this yeah. is amazing. <laughs> I, I was like, that. either this person has a lot of identical <laughs> brothers or <laughs> he's really good at editing. Probably the latter. Yeah. <laughs> well, put it this way, thankfully... Editing is not as hard as it seems. It's more of just getting started with it. Mm -hmm. Funny story about that Jurassic Park video, too. It was supposed to be me in a bunch of different uh, uh, T-Rex costumes. (laughs) And as soon as I started to shoot, the costume ripped. Oh, no. Oh, so you did have the costume on in one of the videos, right? Yeah, was that the Mm T-Rex from that video? (laughs) Was that the repaired T-Rex costume? (laughs) It was, and I had the whole room set up ready to go because it, it, I think the hardest thing about the video editing is knowing how to set up rooms and experimenting with that. I think that's actually trickier than the video editing itself yeah. in a lot of cases. And for that one, it took a while to get the stands in the right place and find a space that's big enough to hold, I think it was 10 people for that one. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. 10 little... And then you like panned out at the end. And I mean, I just... I don't really have a lot of video editing skills. I'm better with audio editing, but I I didn't quite know how that works. But gosh, it makes such a difference to be able to have that skill compared to like, what's the app everyone uses where they just, you know, record a four-part chorale or whatever on their phone? Acapella or something. Acapella? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Acapella, right. I mean, great. The apps are so great that they simplify something that you don't have to have a learning curve for. But when you can do it the way you're able to do it, you just recently put out this fanfare where you added a new a new voice every, what was it, 10 days or something? Technically, I think it was 12 days, but it came out to be 27 different parts. Wow. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so you po- he posted a new video every day to Instagram with the new parts added in. And um, just the way you're able to edit that, is that something that software just kind of helps you automate or do you have to, you know, kind of design that from the beginning it's pretty much planning ahead and designing it from the beginning i mean a project like that i actually had two pieces where i did that format and the first one was it kind of happened more organically where i had this nice melody it's uh prayer for the isolated and i really enjoyed it i thought oh maybe i can make it a duet and then once i made it a duet i'm like quartet why not and Mm -hmm. it just naturally expanded and i just added a new part every day for that one yeah and i thought the idea was fascinating and cool so i decided to actually come back to it with the what the name of it was fanfare for a new generation Mm -hmm. and write a whole piece based around that idea very minimalistic very much uh i want to make something that was both intriguing as time went on instead of just like here's a piece and here's a new part over and over and over again but it actually organically changes and to do that you have to plan ahead yeah because sadly for the first piece i think it's a great piece but at the same time you pretty much know what's going to happen as time goes on whereas fanfare for a new generation the way it organically changes it's like where is it going to go next he has so many parts oh wow i didn't expect that so right 
in it's order to get cool. that, it's it's that sculpture before. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like, you know, you imagine a director for a movie has to plan out every shot ahead of time. It's not just like, hey, let's see what works. You know, where's the lighting? Where's everything going to, to, to work so that I'm not screwed in post-production, right? <laughs> right. And it's almost like playing like chess with yourself and thinking like a couple moves ahead. Yeah. To kind of make sure everything does work in the way it needs to, so... What would you? What would be your advice to musicians who want to, I, you know, obviously they won't go from no online output to what you're doing, but just what's the easiest way to get started with trying to not just do an acapella type app version of online music, but something a little bit more compelling and stuff? Hmm. So I think the first thing to do is, one, just go ahead and do something. Mm. Have one idea. And think of what, what you want to do with that idea. And don't limit yourself with necessarily your imagination. Because put it this way, creating the video will limit yourself as it is of everything. We're very fortunate nowadays to have cell phones and all this different things to actually record yourself. And it may not be the highest end mics. It may not be really the best quality in a lot of ways. But there's still so much that you can do creatively to give a really compelling video. Mm -hmm. um, one cool thing at uh, Arizona State University, where I'm a current uh, doctorate candidate, um, we have been actually diving into video work and audio creation. And what it's been really wonderful to see is a lot of these people take ideas and push them to their limits with just simple equipment a cell phone and literally the audio from their cell phone too. Yeah. So when you realize that you have this one cool idea and you want to pursue it and you want to push it forward, it's mainly taking that and seeing, okay, this is the idea I have. Let's see what I can really, how I can do this with everything that's surrounding me, whether yeah. it be screens or anything, whether it be your housemate, whether it be the nature outside you can tell a compelling story and a compelling message just from that. That and make sure the piece that you are representing is one that really showcases what you're trying to say well. I could tell With by your, the way you're um, speaking about this that your composer creative side is a big part of that. I think a lot of oh, us yeah. um, strictly performers have trouble like, you know, we're always given concerts to play, given music to play. And the idea of just yeah. coming up with a project like that is... Like, I mean, it's very hard to just start, but I guess that's classic advice, right? Just start. Yeah. Do something instead of nothing. <laughs> yes, but it's like, it's the best advice, especially for content creation. I mean, put it this way, you don't know what you're capable of doing or you don't know what you're interested in doing until you try some stuff mm -hmm. and you really explore what is really out there. I mean, I didn't think video editing was going to be in my future, but here we are. Yeah. <laughs> And it's weirdly fun, I, I imagine now, right? Oh, yes. Um, I think the only thing I can say is when something changes from being your own to being somebody else's, it is a little bit... <sighs> the motivation can be lacking sometimes. Mm -hmm. And that that's probably the only thing that I can caution some people who do dive in and like, this is great. And then all of a sudden the motivation goes away because it's you're doing it for other people instead of yourself in some cases. So. Yeah, mm -hmm. and you're 
your YouTube channel and, and all the videos you make are for yourself, I imagine. No one's, um, you know, saying, hey, Brendan, here's another $10,000 to make a, a 27 trumpet fanfare or something. <laughs> if only, right? Right. <laughs> but the cool part is, and once you get past that portion, which pretty much that's where, where I am with this creation, that side, you start to pinpoint exactly how, like, you're given the skill. You have the skill. How can you use it for others? How can you use it less for just yourself and for really like viewers on YouTube? And how can you actually make a difference with it? Yeah. So most of the, I've actually haven't been posting a lot recently because I've been reflecting on that and thinking, okay, I have these skills. I actually have, have a little bit of a following. How can I do it for the good? P particular right now, um, the big one for videos and creation in general it, in general is um, thinking of the trumpet community and how I can help them out. So yeah, I have some things that will come out later that will shed more light on that. Gotcha. I'll look, I'll look forward to that. Um, you also put out teaching videos. So I just wanted to generally ask you, like, do you, how much, how much teaching do you do is, do you have like a, you know, an assistantship as part of your doctorate degree and like what, what, what's your general teaching experience and your teaching philosophy? Right now, I am teaching, yes, 14 different students. Um, a good portion of those are for my teaching assistantship at uh, Arizona State University. Mm -hmm. And I'll have to say, teaching is probably the most fun I have. And doesn't feel like it like leading up to the lesson. Then in the lesson, like, oh, yeah, this is this is so much fun. Like just seeing how kids grow over time, seeing when little light bulbs come up and just smiles at the end of the lesson and or helping um, students. So helping students when they get to a certain point in a lesson where it just seems overwhelming and saying, you do realize this is it's something enjoyable <laughs> and it's OK Wait, that you're Trump feeling is this enjoyable. <laughs> it can be. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's better than I don't know. I would hate to be a horn player, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> or a violinist, God forbid. Thanks. Oh, yes. Uh. <laughs> but I think my philosophy for teaching, and probably the biggest thing I try to teach all of my students is, the biggest one is, how can you take everything that you have, and, well, everything I teach, and apply to yourself and really diagnose your own problems. Mm. That's probably the biggest thing. Most of the teaching videos that you see online, it's actually to help that philosophy. Right. I put it this way. I don't want to be the person who just like, this is what you do. I want to be the person that says, okay, this is a problem that you have. There's many ways to find this answer. Let's find it together. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so then, they take more ownership of, of, of their development. Exactly. And it's a process that I help them along with, but don't necessarily force them to do. Mm -hmm. Right. In fact, that's probably the biggest thing that we have, I've talked about with all my students is forcing anything, forcing development, forcing air, forcing just all of this instead of letting things happen. Mm -hmm. Right. So also, I think giving the student the skill set to like take care of his like or her future problems. I think that's very important too, rather than just being like, okay, now you do this, do that. There are a lot of pe teachers like that, but 
Right. They just, they take away your thinking for yeah, you. Yeah. And they, then do yeah. it right. for you or just show it to you. Like Do a, this exact exercise exactly like this. It's almost like yeah. a doctor saying, take this medicine and then you'll come back next week and we'll check up on you. Like, yeah. I hate those <laughs> exactly doctors too. Right. So yeah, those you know? doctors also are bad. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Instead of like, right. here's a, here's a full, you know, philosophy we can approach. Medicine might be involved, you know, maybe all these other possible things, you know, if you go to a doctor with some anxiety, maybe, maybe medicine isn't the first thing they should give you. They should be like, well, how's your mind doing? Like, do you mm -hmm. meditate? Do you do this? Do you do that? Yeah. Um, right. And it's, it's easier, I think, to just tell people what to do, but it's less mm -hmm. fulfilling for the teacher and for the student. Yeah. And you don't see that much growth either. Yeah. Like you put it this way. I had a talk with all of my ASU students this actually yesterday um what is it technically december 9th so because our semester just got done and what i have for all of my students for for them they have journals and that side which is nothing new except my journals are not paragraphs my journals are i want you to write very short statements that you have for that, that actually helped you out in this lesson mm -hmm. it could be things that i said or a different interpretation that you have anywhere from one to five words. Mm -hmm. And the idea for it is they basically take this little phrase and they, in it's worked for them in the lesson. And it's something that they have, um, that actually shows success when we were working on something. And they basically can use that whenever they're having issues and like, wow, I'm not feeling that great here. And then they go through the journals like that, that's what I need. Right. And taking that phrase and just saying that before they play again. And hopefully it's something that can help them progress forward. That's it's like a reminder, yeah. right? Like you you it's so easy to forget the discoveries you made in the past and then you fall into the same, you know, problem in the video game level and, and you don't realize you already <laughs> solved that level. <laughs> right. And and put it this way, I really enjoy it when the students create those themselves instead of me having the phrases and all the ones I have. Because basically, I have those phrases too, but it's more of what I interpreted from my previous teachers. Sure. So, I mean, when I first started teaching, I was copying what previous teachers were doing to me. And I think all mm -hmm. originality starts with copying of some kind. But the magical moment is when you take ownership yourself. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. And the other thing, I, I my, my former teacher, uh, Kevin Cobb, used to say, I'm not telling you what to do. I'm not teaching you so much as being a mirror that reflects what you're doing more precisely than, um, than you see yourself. <laughs> yeah, I really like that. And mm -hmm. then, you know, he was like, here's five different ways people solve this problem. Go, you know, figure out which one of those might work for you or what combination of those or none of them. You know, like, yeah, some right. people don't do well under that style of teaching, I guess, because they're a little scared to go off on their own. But mm -hmm. you're going to graduate one day and be off on your mm -hmm. own. So, you know, at some point you have to take ownership of what you're doing. Exactly. Because at one point it is following a teacher. But I mean, I, I thankfully haven't had the experience of being by myself without a teacher. But those those students who have finished their undergraduate and then have a year or two off before they go to their next degree, that's, I mean, you become your own teacher at that point. Right. That, or you or, pay somebody to basically 
listen to you and give feedback. Or you have friends, which is nice. Yeah, that's also great about musicians is we can just be like, I mean, that's what I hate about COVID-19. But when I was in school, I would just ask a a fellow trumpet player, hey, I want to play through this audition. Can you just sit there and tell me what you heard? And, you know, we, we always need an extra pair of ears. It's not like they're teaching you. They're just being a, a, a way to reflect what you can't hear. Mm-hmm. Even if you hear right. your own recordings, it's flooded with all your insecurities. And you're like, oh, I sound so bad on that note. And they're like, oh, I didn't notice anything. And mm-hmm. you're like, maybe it's not as big a deal as I thought. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I think it's really cool when you listen to recording by yourself. And then when you listen to recording with somebody else. And how a lot of different things pop up, oh, God. like a lot yeah. more when someone else is like behind your shoulder listening to everything. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you get so self-conscious. You're like, oh my God, they're judging me. I think at, for me, I, at some point between the ages of 25 and 30, I sort of had to just detach from that trumpet player mindset of, um, you know, feeling judged and, and feeling like everyone is hearing me, but also feeling what I feel as going wrong. I realized that the way it feels from from me as a player is not how it sounds out there in the room. They don't mm-hmm. hear that I was uncomfortable on that note. They just heard the note. Yeah. Right. And then you sort of get over that, that, well, not completely get over, but you get over it a little bit and it comes and goes. <laughs> do your yeah, students struggle I'm, with that? They do. Um, I think now more than ever it's actually been more difficult thinking in the in the past couple months because i mean covid and that side i've actually primarily been teaching online compared to Mm -hmm. teaching in person and the nerves and everything come up online too but it's not nearly as it's so different now that you have a screen in front of you Mm -hmm. and there's literally something blocking you from having that interaction yeah like i remember even getting lessons from the online side and it's it's just a weird sensation and weird feeling expressing yourself to basically a microphone <laughs> yeah it, so. it definitely it, it feels um remember my artificial. lesson yesterday it was like so weird like yeah it's hard to start lessons too because yeah. like she was taking a lesson with someone that she's never met before and so it opens with like, you don't want to just be like, what are you playing? You know, it's like, oh, like get to know, yeah. like, you know, loosen the vibe a little bit. Mm-hmm. But it's hard to do that online. It's hard to to mm-hmm. um, get the same human data points and facial expressions and just energy through Zoom. Right. It really is. Yeah. And I think for teaching, I'm I'm a lot more animated while teaching online. I, I have found that. Yeah. Which me as a, a teacher, I am already very animated. So I probably scared a few kids for the first week <laughs> lesson. That's for sure. <laughs> and also it's more tiring. Like I, so we do a lot of teaching to younger kids, like, you know, like beginning piano students or young trumpet players. And I find at the end of that day, I am, I'm just, you know, dead tired. Cause you're like, you just have to overdo everything. And especially for kids to get their attention, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. whereas in person you could just be like, Hey, <laughs> and then get their attention right away, but exactly <laughs> snaps right. don't really <laughs> travel over Zoom. No, they aren't as effective, that's for sure. And then you don't even know what's going on on the other side of the screen, too. So right, their brother could be behind the, this, the camera shooting a Nerf gun at them or something. For example, <laughs> that literally happened. I like the that image. Are you serious? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my oh. God. 
I'm like, oh, that's why Yikes. you haven't listened to one thing I said. <laughs> and you couldn't find middle C on the piano for 20 minutes. <laughs> oh. A year into piano lessons. <laughs> I think the one thing I noticed with all... Yeah, most of my students um, is finding the success of of a soft focus. That's actually something that my current teacher, uh, Joseph Berksaller, has actually been stressing with a lot of the trumpet studio. And I find it very helpful for all the students. It's where you're basically having the right balance of focus for your attention here and not necessarily like wrapped up in every single note and every single little bit, but not necessarily on the back end of like, la, 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 little land of thinking right. all the different little things. So, I like that soft focus. It's it's a good, because focus can become too, uh, like you have to really hold it, you know? They, they, they say the same idea in meditation, you know, the um, you're supposed to rest your attention on the breath and it's yes. like, do you want like this? Um, I'm thinking. I'm, I feel the breath. I, or and or do you want it more relaxed? And I guess the in Buddhism they always say, rest your attention on the breath, the way a butterfly lands on a flower. You know, just a very mm -hmm. gentle, soft sense of focus. Not, mm -hmm. you know, like you're holding up a cinder block and trying not to let your arms collapse or something. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Because I so. My my meditation has actually started this semester, and I've kind of been out of practice for the last couple of th couple of days. But that's mainly because I've been distracted with um, some a certain person and all that. Because uh -huh. I I recently got engaged too. Oh, oh congrats! So congrats! That's exciting. Thank you. So, um, but with meditation on that side. I've been encouraging a lot of my students to follow that model and really taking focus of the breath of it, of that too. Um, I think I'm trying to remember, put it this way. This was a big lesson that I had in the middle of the semester, kind of relating the breath, not necessarily with like, what was it? The mind and the body is basically coming together with the breath and taking that idea of musicality, with um with physical playing and putting those two together with your breathing and your attention ahead right so that's something that i've actually been teaching a lot of my students and, and i found a lot of success making like a unified experience of that right mm -hmm. exactly yeah i mean as trumpet players especially i think we we and our students struggle with the the weird it's just a weird technique that we have and our very sound production it's just mm -hmm. so weird. We're vibrating our tiny little flesh lips into this piece of metal. And it's and you can't mm -hmm. see it. You know, you can't see air. You can't see inside the mouthpiece unless you have like a clear mouthpiece or something. But still, you can't really see what's going on. So it's mm -hmm. and, and everyone's conception of it is different in their own mind. It's it's just so easy to get distracted with the physical and the technical on trumpet. But yeah, mm -hmm. I found the same thing as I get older and think about mind body and the, the the separation is not what it seems and i sort of just just let let breathing happen and, and then you just accept whatever comes out kind of thing right and i think it's good to focus on either one i mean we do that as humans too in some cases i mean um 
put it this way, I mean, we can study and we can work out too. So I think it's fine to focus on like the physical and the beginning part of the routine, like warming up in that side, thinking about sound production and also what you're doing there. But then when you get to the actual like etudes, even like parts of scales and that the scales being the transition from that, then you really focus on musicality and all the other thoughts for your physicality go away too. Right. Literally dividing it up in certain points. And then when you're performing, you're basically letting letting the body do the work for you. Speaking of scales, mm-hmm. you have a book, um, a, a method book for trumpet that you came out with mm-hmm. called Scales with Character. For, mm-hmm. for the non-musicians listening, a method book is basically like, you know, and they come in all sorts of flavors. They might be working on one specific skill like flexibility or articulation on an instrument, but it's basically a way to acquire technique of some kind. Some of them are are complete. They're like that giant Red Arbin's book I have <laughs> over there that you see all the time yeah. is supposed to be like a pretty complete, you know, all the skills you might need to play most things on trumpet. Mm-hmm. So can you just describe a little bit how that method book came to be and, and what, what you think of as the main mission of it? Yeah, sure. So that method book, and it primarily stemmed from my studies as undergraduate uh, student at uh, Columbus State University with Dr. Robert Murray. Mm-hmm. He forced every student to come in to do scale studies. And these were simple. You played a scale at core note equals 60, going up and going down, a thirds pattern and a triplet pattern for that. For all 12 for major, and then when you go to the next semester, you do minor, then harmonic minor, and so on and so on, until you basically learn all the combinations of scales when, you, when you're done with the degree. I thought it was really, really cool. When I started teaching this to my younger students, because I think it's valuable, I, it just wasn't, I had to break it down for them. Yeah. And I had to also teach them how to apply this to their music. So for me, I took the same concept, which was putting these scales in and putting an, uh, the same two patterns plus the diatonic pattern, which um, it's basically taken from the Clark's two, if you know that one. Right. And as I was looking up, it's like, yep, it's a diatonic pattern, which is actually the correct definition for it. So um, the I basically took those and I added some exercises under them so you can actually learn to break apart those scales. Mm-hmm. So um, you basically can practice them and work on multiple different things with just that scale portion and better yourself and really internalize the scales instead of just repping them over and over again. Yeah. With that. Mm-hmm. It's, I was going to say, it, se- it seems more similar to how jazz musicians practice their their chord scales and stuff. And it, it just becomes embedded in their DNA, so to speak, not just like this, I memorize my scale and then I'm done with the scale kind of thing. <laughs> Exactly. And I think the most crucial part is taking the technique portion, learning how the pattern is and internalizing that, and then having an etude literally on the next page where you can apply what you learned to a specific character, Mm -hmm. literally working on the musicality. Can can you describe what musical character is for someone who's not a musician? 
Sure thing. So a musical character is basically like, how are you going to be acting for this piece? Are you going to be the bold character? Are you going to be the somber, sad character in this? What are you going to be portraying and what actor are you going to be for this certain etude? Mm -hmm. So I actually... To, uh, most of my students, they have to sing in my lessons, uh -huh. I, but their singing is very, uh, put it this way, I challenge them, who can be more extravagant, you or me? I see. Them. <laughs> so, there, in one, one of the etudes in there is a Stravinsky dance taken okay. from the Rite of Spring, which is this really crazy, like, aggressive, agitated, almost like heavy metal music, yeah. but written in 1910. <laughs> so taking that same like energy, but applying it, because every single time everyone starts A2, it's like, it's like so delicate. And then I'm like, that's not how you do it. It's and like being super agitated. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's the whole spectrum of emotions that a human being can have we are supposed to represent that in how we play. Mm -hmm. yeah. And when we're younger, we tend to average everything out to this neutral, like unemotional thing. And we think, oh, we just have a pretty sound that's good enough. But sometimes you don't want a pretty sound or sometimes you want a pretty delicate, light, bouncy sound, or sometimes you want a noble, like bold sound, you know, it, it all changes. And I, I found that the older I get, it becomes somewhat subconscious. But mm -hmm. I can imagine to, to have something like scales with character, um, teaching kids scales in like middle school and high school, they start to realize that the technique is serving the character. It's not just this separate thing you learn. Exactly. Because at the end of the day, we want to spread a message. And that's the goal, not to just play the most polished piece out there but to give messages and clear messages to people yeah and doing that through scales i mean it you can do you can do that through scales but i mean music doesn't mostly seem like scales it. and arpeggios right so <laughs> yes of course <laughs> right now do you have any plans to make a, a scales with character but like you know weird scales like alternate scales sometime Yes, but I actually have another book coming out first, which oh. I am in the process of writing right now. It's basically taking some um, warm-up techniques that a lot of a lot of people have, taking like stuff from like the flow studies, Chickowitz flow studies, but making them really accessible for all ages and not just pretty much high school and up. Right. Yeah. Those those flow studies. Um... I mean, I can sort of get some middle school students, but they, they they get to the third line and they can't play high enough and it the concept doesn't really land. Um, but right. but I, I love, it's this concept called song and wind mm -hmm. where you say, okay, we have all this technique we could think about. Let's just think about one technical aspect, which is our air, our wind. Mm -hmm. And the song means the musical phrase. Mm -hmm. And those two aren't these separate things. They can be two sides of the same coin. Um, mm -hmm. And... I've had so much success with students who are stuck when I say, we're not going to think about anything else for the next month. It's only song and wind and that's it. And they usually let go of whatever was holding them back, some tension. I don't know what their brain's doing, but I know that if they only think about song and wind, then the other stuff can sort of peel away and, and they can get more flow. And, you know, just what you said earlier about the, the air and the body and the mind, it's all one thing. 
And mm -hmm. I think that that approach really, it can, it can knock down a lot of barriers for students. Right. The problem is, especially with um, the younger students, is even with the flow studies, it's just it's just a little too difficult. That's it. Yeah. It and getting something where it's accessible to all students, I think, would be helpful. Something it's put it this way: the opening idea is uh, centering studies, and it's basically um, the flow studies for the intro, where it's a little turn. Mm -hmm. But then it's it stays on a G and centers on G and moves up and down. And eventually you play a full octave for it, where it's adding one note above and one note below until you get get the full thing, but you're still centering on G. Sure. Doing yeah. it not not chromatically, but diatonic. Because mm -hmm. I think chromatic is what scares a lot of kids. So Yeah. <laughs> what a G sharp. That's a totally different thing. I've never seen it. It's like the, it's we got three buttons. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> one sharp's okay, but not once you add like three. Uh. Yeah, it becomes like a, a, I guess a game of chess for them mentally, right? Um, I mean, that's so. I always tell my students, like, I'm like, you didn't really practice, did you? And they're like, how do you know? I'm like, well, trumpet has one really easy thing. The only easy thing really is fingerings, and I'm looking at your fingerings, and they're just like hesitating or not going down. If you couldn't play the high note you're dealing with every issue every trumpet player has ever dealt with. But when you can't play the fingerings, it means, you know, you just didn't put the the time in because that's the the first thing to come, you know, with the exception of crazy hard technical passages that have hard fingerings. Um, I think that's, right. you know, I always, I have no patience for my students who um, don't, have their fingerings down because it's just like you didn't put time in practicing didn't happen or you spent 10 minutes barely paying attention or whatever right and hmm. thankfully most of my students right now I, I guess they are putting the time in well are most <laughs> of your students not... college students yeah right now they yeah. are so that's why and, it, and it's a grade for them so they're like yeah, yeah that's I true too yeah. <laughs> i was gonna say that's why you probably enjoy teaching much more than we do because we're for teaching sure. mostly middle school uh some high school you know a lot of younger kids and gosh it's just so right. hard to get them to do anything right and that was my experience last year when i had a lot of younger kids especially around middle school and well, elementary and middle school students, that which is where a lot of these ideas stem from, too. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, a lot of those probably stem from watching all the failures of, of, of all the, I mean, trumpet, you acquire so many bad habits if you just go through the normal trumpet pipeline. Um, yes. I mean, I, I can't think of almost any student of mine except the few that I've started from the beginning. And I've had to even say, be very careful about listening to what your teachers in school tell you. Because some of them have never played trumpet, and mm -hmm. they tell them the exact opposite advice from what I think makes a beautiful sound, like staying relaxed, keeping the lips, you know, from getting tight and all that stuff, letting air right. lead the way, um, thinking about music, not just like grabbing at notes with the lips. And they're told the opposite of that in school sometimes. And I'm like, I wonder... <laughs> I used to wonder where all these bad habits came from, where mine came from, because I had them myself, but that's where it comes from. Right. It's kind of, it's unfortunate that for, I think, a lot of brass players in general, 
that they start developing these ideas and techniques in their undergrad and not necessarily high school and before. Yeah. And it's almost like undergraduates come to come to college and it's basically their first two semesters relearning how to play the instruments. Totally. And, yeah. And it's it, it's discouraging in a lot of ways, but at the same time that means that like people like us can actually help out by giving the pedagogy and kind of giving new life and new ways to show some of the younger kids how to do things. So yeah, yeah. That's, that's at least the encouraging part. Um, at the same time, I don't know. There's a lot of fertile ground there to, to kind of rework how we teach brass instruments and especially trumpet. I mean, right. when you look at youth orchestras, the string, like really good youth orchestras, the string players are often as young as 12 as, uh, and, you know, usually not much older than 17, like in high school-ish. Whereas the brass players are often already in college because high school level brass players can't play really legit repertoire in orchestra yet. They just are still working out sound quality and range and, and just how to play. Right. It's just a and different development. That's something that's very clear, I think, nowadays. And put it this way, I think there's going to be a lot of people who are going to be interested to help. Mm -hmm. But actually finding what is the solution for that is going to be more of a challenge and take a lot of time. So Yeah, I mean, if there's a lot of you know bad information out there for young brass students, it takes time for changes to happen and new mm -hmm. philosophies. I mean, Song and Wind, I think... You grew up in the South, is that right? I did. So was um, that more prevalent there? Because I know where I grew up here in New York, like I had to learn it from my first teacher who was, you know, from Michigan. So no, nobody here taught me that or even taught me how to be musical until I was in high school. I didn't really get a lot of that, honestly. I My high school experience and a little bit before, I had, I had a private teacher, thankfully, um, but she was actually a trombone teacher. Mm -hmm. Very, very thankful for her. I mean, she is the one who basically got me composing and really interested in writing. She, I'll always bring in a, a new piece for her every lesson. Like, listen to this. And she's like, that's really nice. Mm -hmm. How, have you practiced? No. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but she really progressed my love for music in general. And with my trumpet playing, she gave me a lot of really great information, but I mean, I was young. I didn't write anything down. Yeah. <laughs> and most of it was learning different different aspects of music instead of the technique of it. So song and wind and that side, I I didn't get most of that until really I didn't I I didn't even know about it until like late undergrad. Right. Honestly. I got most of my, and how I did my warm-ups was more of the stamp technique. Okay. And that side, and kind of what I originated from myself. And put it this way, again, I was, I would say I'm still a late-blooming, like, trumpeter in a lot of ways, because I didn't really, like, get interested until, I guess it was four years ago. <laughs> gotcha. So, I'm actually, because like I said, I was primarily composer, Brandon. Yeah. For like the most of my younger, like 
20 year old and before so so how has getting really into trumpet playing affected your compositions i think it's really cool now that i am really interested in trumpet because at this point i think about almost how i'm going to play the line for every other instrument before i actually write it down it's like i'm like like imagining myself playing the instrument mm -hmm. and literally going through and like, oh yeah, that's possible. And using my ear to actually give off what needs to be written and be more idiomatic with it. Right. And also see if that expression is going to work well for an instrument. I'm thinking, I'm thinking bassoon because I actually played bassoon for a little, oh. little while too. Nice. I tech, I've technically played because I was a music ed major for undergrad, so I played all the instruments, but even before then, I was testing some things out in high school. So, Basum was one of those that I actually played in one of the lower bands. Oh, nice. So, I've always wanted uh, to try Basun. It, it, it looks, yeah. I mean, it's when it's when Basun is played beautifully and it makes so that amazing. just like rich tone that's the base of the woodwind mm -hmm. section, it's like, oh my gosh, that is amazing. And, yeah. you know, the opposite is also true, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is pretty amazing. Like, just letting a low C just resonate. Mm -hmm. Well, sorry, I'm thinking trumpet. A low B flat. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> I know. Transposition. Ugh. But a low B flat, it, it feels so nice. Playing anything high, ugh, I right. could not do it. It was, it was way too difficult for me. But at least knowing what it's like and imagining a player and knowing, oh, yeah, they're doing it this way with mostly the left hand and then that's it's it helps at least know kind of the sensations that they're feeling and how they're expressing it too yeah i mean the more idiomatic you can write for any instrument the more expressive they're able to be they're not going to be caught up on like i mean we all know there are trumpet parts that you know it's keeping you from being in that musical mindset because you know of all the ways you could you could just epically fail um and it's trumpet so it will be a loud failure not a soft one <laughs> Right. I think with trumpet playing in particular, as I get to actually play through difficult music and play through things that are challenging, it's starting to open up my ears of different styles, different just how composers in general are are using different instruments. Mm -hmm. And my ear is less like, wow, that's really difficult. Looking at all the, those different rhythms, it's more of like, that's a really cool effect. Seeing all like the little tuplets on top of each other. And I'm not thinking about technique as much for like what I see. I'm thinking about what is being expressed. So for my compositions now, I mean, I'm writing an unaccompanied trumpet solo currently. And it's, I feel a lot more open with what I'm able to do because I'm starting to get better at my own instrument and starting to realize, oh, I can actually express a lot of different things with this and not just be constrained to all these different things. Yeah. So. I think generally the best composers are, are very good players too, or at least they were, maybe they're out they of practice or something. Yeah. Um, but they, they, if, if you're not able to play any instrument at a high level, it's, I think it's just got, it's gotta be very difficult to, put yourself in the mind of a performer, which is, right. you know, and then and, and at that point, we've all um, encountered this where you play music, new music written for orchestra, solo, whatever it is, 
you've done this at at a, a string quartet before where oh, you're like, God. this yeah. is impossible. Like, I don't know how I will play these notes. Yeah. <laughs> right. I think it's interesting, the thinking of like composer backgrounds of nowadays and like I, the new generation of composers mm -hmm. and seeing what they're actually studying and what they're actually doing. And what I find most fascinating is like, I don't like, put it this way, at, at the university level, yes, you see doctorates and like people who have studied composition undergrad, masters, doctorate and so on, so on. But besides that, and most of the people who are really getting a lot of traction, I mean, like Carolyn Shaw, from what I believe, like she, like, not really composition as her main main source of her background. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she's an amazing performer. <laughs> exactly. So that's a trend I'm seeing all around is performance with composition. That's it. It makes so much sense, and I'm actually really glad that I I did a, a double masters for my my time at the Hart School. Um, oh, I didn't realize you went to Hart. I did. Did you study yep. with Kevin there? Was he still there? No, I oh. I studied with Phil Snedeker. Oh, gotcha. Mm -hmm. So, doing that that double was f was great, but I'm glad that I made the decision to continue performing because no matter what, I mean, I feel like at this point, if I wanted to teach composition, great, it, then I would pursue more composition. Yeah, but for just writing for the sake of writing, I don't think it makes a lot of sense. So. There can be a little Advice. bit of a gatekeeping too uh, in the composition world. Like I, it's even if, even if it's self-imposed, like the idea of me sitting down to write a piece of music is just like, what? <laughs> like, well, how? Where would I start? You know? And and I think maybe this trend you you just talked about is that more people are noticing if you just start doing something like that, you realize like, oh, I'm a performer. I already have so many of the skills that I need to be a composer. Right. Not to belittle like the specialization of, of an experience of being a composer, but to just start, it doesn't mean you're going to write something amazing, but you're going to write something and it will be music. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, that's getting a degree in composition really just gives you the time to prioritize your writing. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's the same way for with doing a, a performance major. I mean, yeah, you're basically just giving... carving out two years so you can practice and, and, and learn new skills, of course, and, and background history theory, but you're basically giving yourself time. Exactly. Expensive Which... time. <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. But at the same time, it's, it's worth it in a lot of cases, but you don't need it. Yeah. Like you can still just compose and have this idea and it's it's probably a really great one. It just takes time for you to actually carve it out and show other people and get feedback from them. Yeah. Like that's really where you're going to come composition lessons. It's basically somebody going like, "Yeah, I like most of that except for this portion. You know, the bassoon's going to hate you if you put that in." Sure, yeah. Or what's, so, what's your main idea here? Wouldn't it be more effective if you did it in this way or that way, whatever, yeah. Right, exactly. And of course, getting the, the history and the background, but there's so many things online where you can get that just from like, like 
what Skillshare is like one of the big ones now for actually yes, getting a yeah. lot of things. But but that's more like video editing in that side. But there's all sorts of online things where you can still get all this information if you're really, really wanting to go for it. Right. Not discouraging if there's any undergrads out there thinking about quitting their degree. Don't. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe do. <laughs> I'll, I'll be on the other shoulder. I don't know. <laughs> So a couple of more zoomed out personal questions to finish us off. Um, so you do a lot of stuff, right? You're getting a doctorate. You put out these online videos with some amount of frequency. You said you were doing less lately, but um, what 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 is like what keeps you motivated? What's your motivational fuel if if you if you think about it that way? So I think the biggest motivation for me, one, everything that I'm doing is fun. Everything okay. I'm doing is enjoyable. And every single job that I have is more so helping somebody else and giving somebody some type of fulfillment. And for me, that's that's really, really encouraging. I like helping other people. Mm. And I love seeing that uplift others. For video work and having these videos be out there. Um, the reason why I haven't been doing as much is for that purpose. I mean, the last couple ones that I posted, um, was one was the Vivaldi Violin Concerto. Oh, I saw that one, yeah. Mm -hmm. Which was great, but the main purpose of that is actually to have a, a basic product for what I'm also working on, the Trumpeters Multi-Track Competition and Seminar. Mm -hmm. to basically, we're basically me and two of my other colleagues, uh, Marcus Grant and David Cook, we are actually hosting a full uh, trumpet competition with a seminar where we teach people how to make videos and do these cool different things, which is free for all ages, and then a competition where they use those skills to actually compete for some cash prizes and even a microphone nice that's so nice, that's yeah. actually perfectly placed like to to include that um instruction on video and and a lot of musicians they play beautifully they don't know shit about recording <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. and that's what we wanted to do because there's a lot of a lot of um people who are trying to give that experience out there um but we wanted to have a purpose for that which yeah. a competition monetization sure but it's like you you know for those competitions the money is very little it's more about if like getting some recognition that you've done it and you've really are able to compete in general and, so we're, and the growth you get from challenging yourself to do something you know right so put, we wanted a seminar where we can teach this but really to apply those skills somewhere else mm -hmm. and we think it's going to be really helpful for the people who actually do both of the seminar and competition. Yeah. And we're also doing it less for us. I mean, put, put it this way, the seminars a hundred bucks for seven sessions, which is like, whoa, it's a steal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then a pretty, pretty generous registration fee for the competition of $40 for one person and then 40 for a whole group. So really generous oh for ensemble stuff yes because yeah. there's two there's two different sides a solo producer someone who does everything themselves the audio editing video and everything and then another category where it's people collaborating and to justify everyone coming together and doing all that work 
it's just going to be one registration fee for those people. So I, I could see that really working, especially including all that technological side of things. I think maybe after COVID, universities will even include that as part of a music degree. I mean, I learned more about audio and microphones and editing and mastering from starting a podcast than anything musically I've done. I always played concert, right. but some other, you know, dude was over there setting up some mics. I'm like, oh, those, what's that one called? What's that one called? Condenser right. what? Oh, I don't know what the hell that means. Like, <laughs> And Arizona State University, I mean, they know that this is part of the future, which is why it's actually like, we've barely done anything in person. And it's been primarily how do we make these multi-tracks together mm -hmm. and actually record record really high quality um, sounds for ourselves and then work with each other to do this type of, of uh, performance, online performance work. So cool. it's definitely going to be in our futures. So well, I'll look out for that and uh, let me know when you, is that launched yet or is that coming soon? It is launched officially on, it's on Facebook, YouTube. The seminar starts in January, beginning of January, and the deadline for the competition is February 12th. Okay. So Yeah, we're connected on Facebook, but somehow the Facebook algorithm overlords <laughs> kept that info from me, so I'll, I'll look into it. Yeah. Yeah, we're, we're going to uh, put out some more information really soon because um, everyone's in like, ah, semester, school, yeah, yeah, craziness. Yeah. So it's just, it's in multiple different places. Wait until they're which, settled in for the holidays and they can think ahead. <laughs> exactly. Get some Christmas money to just add into a little chaffer with us. Yeah. You know? mm -hmm. So I'll, I'll, I'll link that in the episode notes if there's any trumpet players listening. Um, I'll put that somewhere under the link section of the episode. I guess last question is when you look to the future, either in music or just generally, what are you most worried about? And on the flip side, what are you most excited about? Hmm. I know that's kind of a deep question to throw at the top of your head, but I kind of like seeing people's top of the head answer. Well, I think the big one for most worried about is being a young professional and being somebody who is not necessarily like the person for this. How do you make a career in music nowadays? And how do you how do you get people to see the value for being a musician? And what do, what does that really take in terms of hours and everything and still having a life for yourself? Mm -hmm. I think that's probably the most concerning thing. Because put it this way, it's less even for me, but more of what I advocate for my students. Because I know how much work I put into this. Mm -hmm. But that's a lot to give up for a lot of people. Yeah. It's it's a lot of time. It's a lot of money. It's This is a tough field. And it's just going to get harder as time goes on. Yeah. And you, the, the skills that we've talked about today of producing for yourself and that side, that's going to be more relevant especially with like people with jacob collier around who are literally like right. doing all these crazy things and it's just has such a brilliant mind too at the same time i'm all encouraged by the exact same thing because now we have so much access to just free software that is so powerful that it can basically match 
like movies back in like 2000 to 2010, mm-hmm. which is completely free, DaVinci Resolve, which is how we're going to be teaching our course actually. Oh. Um, audio engineering that is very accessible, very low priced, and you actually can find some free versions too. But there's so many things that you can do by yourself, not like let alone with other people. It's just you're you could basically produce and create some really creative, really lovely things nowadays. And put it this way, most of my videos, I, I most of them are done in like maybe like three three days to a week. Mm-hmm. Like arrangements, yeah, arrangement and all. I mean, they, they oh, even even arranging the music you're saying is is all happens yeah. within a week or so. I mean, you've arranged yeah. things on your YouTube channel in like an hour live stream where you sit there in front of your <laughs> green screen, I guess, or whatever. You know, you're projecting your computer behind and and you're just showing the process of how you decide. All right, I know this melody in my head. Let's uh, let's give it to this instrument or let's you know articulate it like this or whatever. Right, and put it this way, like. Sure, I've been doing this for a while, but that means other people can do it too. Sure. Probably even better because, well, <laughs> I, I could definitely, I can tend on the lazy side for sure. Oh, yeah. Interesting. <laughs> I would I would guess by your, you know, all the videos you put yeah. out and stuff, I was thinking like, oh, man, I'm lazy. This guy's putting out everything. <laughs> yeah, that's like, the first <laughs> thing we said. Like, oh, my God, we're lazy. It's, it's more of I know what to do. And that's that's what I like to show other people is this is how you do it. It's not hard. It's just... It's it's knowing what to do for, sure. for certain places. And that's really exciting to me. I think a lot of people are going to really grapple onto that and start making some, I think, really powerful messages through this. Cool. Yeah. So I th- I'm super excited to see the future really like four or five years from now. I think, honestly, COVID has helped promote this for a lot of other people. Now it's just getting the quality there, which is why, again... I've stepped back so I can I can have a better view of that instead of the whole do it three like three days to a week. Let's see what I can do in a month. Mm-hmm. Ah, interesting. Yeah, yeah. There, there, there's a be- delicate balance between the quantity of output and the quality, right? Exactly. Especially in because art. Well, right. And my old videos, I mean, they're they're good, but put it this way, now people are catching up and they know what to do. So it's like, oh. Mm-hmm. Time to time to go back to the drawing board and see what I can really create. So. I like that mm-hmm. though. That's that's the that's the path of an artist. I would say, right, is to constantly go back to that drawing board and be like, what do I even know? What am I doing? Yeah. <laughs> exactly, and realize that what you've created is great still, but it's okay to push yourself a little bit. Yeah, mm-hmm. you have to, otherwise you stagnate. And then you know, I think art is all about stepping into the unknown a little bit and. And going to places that make you uncomfortable and and seeing what new elements of your personality come out as you do that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I didn't realize how minimalistic I was until, well, this semester. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, for, you know, whatever's inside of your mind and your subconscious, you don't really know about it until it comes out and you discover it. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Interesting. Well, thanks a lot for coming on. I appreciate you, uh, taking the hour here to talk to us yeah, thank uh, you anything else you want to say to the to the folks at home or in their cars or wherever they happen to listen <laughs> all that i can say is if you want to know more information about me or even 
all that I've talked about compositions, videos, uh, the multi-track competition, and the other uh, organization I'm with, Rhode Island Recording Ensemble, you can find all of it at my website, bdixmusic.com. Awesome. So, I will I will also throw that link in the episode notes, and you can also buy your arrangements and compositions on there too. So uh, to trumpet players, and your, and your scales with character book is on there, I saw. Um, mm-hmm. So I will link right. all of that. All right. Mm-hmm. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. All right, see ya. <laughs> all right, thanks for listening to this episode of Exploring Kodawari. If you enjoyed it, we hope you'll consider sharing it on social media and with friends. You can also help us out by leaving a rating and a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Those help us more than you would think. And if you'd like to help us out in a more substantial way, consider going over to our website to make a donation through PayPal. Links are in the episode notes for this. You can do this as a one-time donation or a recurring monthly donation. All of that support will help us to set aside time in order to create content for the podcast and the blog. And finally, please get in touch with us and say hi, either on social media or privately through email. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening and see you next time.